0: I'm Ethan Weiss. I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. In the process of building Keto, we realized that so many important decisions, from nutrition to business and beyond, are made with imperfect evidence. So we decided to speak to experts across various industries and ask them about how they approach this problem. And what we learned was fascinating and thrilling. We thought that these answers would be of interest to a broad audience of people. So that's why we're so excited to launch this new podcast we are calling Best Known Method. My first conversation was with Sid Mukherjee, one of the most interesting physician scientists, heck, one of the most interesting people in the world. Sid is an Indian-American physician, biologist, oncologist, and author. He is best known for his 2010 book, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. This won notable literary prizes, including the 2011 Pulitzer Prize for General Nonfiction and the Guardian First Book Award, among others. The book was listed in the all-time 100 nonfiction books, The 100 Most Influential Books of the Last Century by Time Magazine in 2011. He also happens to have an interest in nutrition and specifically published a paper last summer that showed that mice on a ketogenic diet did better when being treated for cancer with chemotherapy drugs than those getting a standard diet. I flew to New York to sit down with Sid in his office at Columbia University to learn about his path to medicine, his path to science, and how he developed into one of the great physician writers of our time. And lastly, to discuss his recent work that he's done to examine the role of the ketogenic diet in cancer treatment. I hope you'll enjoy.
1: I was born in Delhi in 1970. I went to school there, went to high school there. I was interested in, obviously, science and medicine, as well as the humanities my closest teachers were usually teachers of english and history but my more natural inclination was um, in the biology and physics um, went to stanford after that it was an unusual choice actually uh, in 1989
0: how do you, how, sorry i'm interrupting you which is yes. against
1: the rules how, how do you do that how, how does a kid from delhi end up at stanford well so it, it, now it's easier Then it was a little harder to conceive i had uncles who were professors at berkeley so i had spent two summers, one of them sort of toodling around in one of their labs um, as just a, a young kid. Um, and I was um, very taken by the sort of the Berkeley system. It was just a, a wonderful place. But Berkeley was a, is, was and is a public school, as you know, and it's very hard to for a kid from Delhi to get a scholarship to go. And, um, and as a friend of mine once told me, uh, even if they gave some money in scholarships, half of infinity is still infinity. So, I decided that I would apply around and got into a bunch of East Coast schools and Stanford. And I was sort of weirdly attracted to Stanford just because there seemed to be kind of an energy coming out of the place in 1989, which was somehow different from all the other places. And I can only describe it as a kind of an anxious technology energy. Um, and you could feel it in, in 1989 before Obviously, before Facebook was born, obviously before any social media was born, but there was a technological energy in at the at the university, and you could feel it. And so I said, you know, I want to be, I want to feel that, and be be immersed in it. And so that's how I ended up going to Stanford. They gave me a very generous offer, and and those days there were only three students, if I remember, four students from India um, as undergraduates who came to Stanford. Um, to, uh, two from Israel, one from Poland. I mean, it was a real scattershot. These days, I mean, for these, there's a wave. It's a tidal wave. But back in 1989, it was quite a, it was, it was quite a journey. There were no cell phones, no emails. When you landed up at, uh, at a foreign university as a young student, 18, 19, your parents would lose touch with you for two weeks uh, before you got that thing called the landline. So it was a very weird experience. My, parents obviously got anxious and they called up uh, the international house at Stanford and said, I just want to make sure that my son is safe. Uh, And some person answering the phone said, yes, I'm happy to help you. But, you know, we're getting one phone call like this every five minutes. You have to tell me who your son is. And she said my name and she was like, I I, just tell me a little bit more. And finally she said, she says, oh, the, 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 the lanky, the lanky dude who doesn't say very much. And my mother knew I was okay, so that was my that was my that was my that's how I ended up at Stanford. So from there on, what happens? Wait, a uh, sec. before you go on, you you arrived
0: at Stanford in the fall of 1989, and I was around in the fall of 1989. Something big happened in the Bay Area that fall. Your parents must
1: have completely lost it. They, but you know, so the, so what you're talking about, of course, is the big earthquake, and I have a very very vivid recollection of it because I was in in the uh, we had. During sort of orientation, we had this kind of moment in which we were told that there might be an earthquake, this is an earthquake run zone, blah, 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 and everyone ignored it and said, whatever. Then one afternoon, I was working in my room, um, and I have a very distinct memory of it. I got up, and the, f- the first rumbles uh, I, I, I found, and uh, I went to the doorway because I remembered that someone had told me, stand within under framing if you can. I was on the third floor. And I had a long hallway, which was several hundred feet long. And I watched two full waves uh, of the earthquake in the hallway in concrete. So I don't know if you've ever seen concrete ripple, but there were two full ripples that went through the concrete like it was water. And I was a 100% convinced I was going to die because I was on the third floor and I knew that the entire thing could collapse um, on top of me and then I would have nowhere to go. It would be all the way down. Uh, but strangely, as you know, I mean, because of a lot of work that had been done, actually important um, engineering work that had been done at Stanford to prepare for years um, before this, there, were no, there was not one single fatality and I think barely any casualties. I mean, houses were broken and so forth. Um, But that was amazing. And it was actually a strange reminder that, um, that engineering really matters.
0: Here is a talented kid from India who came to college at Stanford to launch what was eventually going to be a spectacular career as a physician, scientist, and author. And here, just a month or so after arriving... He nearly dies in a significant earthquake centered 28 miles from the Stanford campus. But he did not die. And Sid attributes his good fortune to the fact that smart engineers built buildings that could withstand major earthquakes without collapsing. This was one of many fortunate circumstances that, together with tremendous talent and drive, led Sid to where he is today. So so somewhere along the, along the way while at Stanford you
1: decided you wanted to think about a career in medicine. But so so my medicine career is is unusual because it, it, it's a little bit in reverse. I worked in Paul Berg's lab when I was an undergraduate. My first year, I started reading what was going on. As I said, I was kind of interested in the the, the energy around the science that was going on at Stanford, and I started reading what was going on, and then became fascinated by um the whole idea of 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 recombinant DNA and changing genetic material. Um, of course this was done, I mean, as we'll come to very soon. This was before the years of CRISPR. Uh, these were the first attempts to make changes in viral DNA or in bacterial DNA. And cloning was just had just appeared. And so I went actually on a trip by myself and with a few, a few friends, I went to a the famous conference where the moratorium was initially placed, or at least a version of a moratorium uh, was placed on DNA. It's actually not a moratorium. It was a, regulation, it was a regulated way, uh, a stepwise way to ensure safety. That was mid-1970s or so, or so uh, right? That's right. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. So, then I became interested and said, well, you know, why don't I ask Paul uh, Berg, who I, of course, didn't know aside from his name. So, and, and, and the university was like that then, and I think, I hope it's still like that. I'm a big fan but and and others places are like that i walked into Paul Berg's office i made an appointment with him as as an undergraduate and said um i'd like to work in your lab and he said well what do you know about anything i mean he didn't say it in a in a nasty way but he sort of asked me and i said look i've been uh, you know i've been doing my work i've done some homework here and i said i went to a silamar and he said "Really, really went to silomar? and i said yep i and i you know he, I, I took notes and etc so Paul was very welcoming. He said, sure. I mean, I've never had, really never had an undergraduate in the lab, but um, but I'll, if that works with you, it, it'll be great. Um, so I was in Paul's lab for three years. I became interested. I wrote a thesis about, um, that had to do with virology and did some, for me, the first experiments with viruses, recombinant viruses, making recombinant viruses. And uh, you might remember at the same time, Interestingly, 89, 90, 91 uh, were also the peak of the deaths from the AIDS epidemic, uh, particularly around San San Francisco and New York and several other places, Los Angeles. So I was also at the same time volunteering at the hospital and began to see this kind of tidal wave of of death. Um, Stanford saw the edge of it. As you very well know, UCSF was the center of it at here, St. Vincent's, um, and other hospitals in New York were the center of it. So, I I was making recombinant viruses and recombinant yeast cells in the laboratory, and here were people in some ways dying of uh, a terrible viral disease. Um, So, I became very naturally interested in viruses, virology, disease, etc., and then I applied for a Rhodes. Did somebody come to you and
0: say, Sid, you should think about applying for a Rhodes, or was that... Occurred to you?
1: Yeah, People came up to me and said, you you know, you should do graduate training. And if you're thinking about medical school, you should maybe do graduate training first or do the NMD-PhD program. Um, So, it wasn't as if, you know, I sort of dreamt of it one morning. I I, I was mentored through some of that process. And and didn't you have to have some athletic thing or something? Did you have to... Oh, uh, you know, by that time, the... uh, the athletic piece of of so, so the first thing the first answer is I had none, uh, just to be very clear about it. Um, uh, you know, by that time the whole mandate of the Rhodes Scholarship had changed significantly, which is to say that having a kind of overall image of uh, for the for Cecil Rhodes it was a strong white man uh, able to you know swim five hundred meters in whatever. 13 minutes or seconds, I don't even know the right number, as well as, you know, run three miles and then come back home and, you know, put on a tuxedo and go to a, a, a dinner and, and, and write a couple of math equations on the side. That person was a caricature. Um, it was a caricature of what was really happening in the world. What was really happening in the world is that things were diversifying, intensifying. People had declared interests, deep interests in fields by the time they were finishing college. You know, one person in in at Stanford or at any of the other university at Middlebury College or at Amherst was becoming at the end of his or her undergraduate years the world's expert on a particular edge of, of French philosophy. And to expect that person to be the the big white man who, you know, Puts the tuxedo on and the and 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 also writes math equations was an absurdity. It was it was a caricature? So they had basically taken the athletic portfolio and essentially relaxed it to say as long as you have a healthy healthy life. And we've relaxed it since then, saying, "Well, what does healthy mean? What if you have happen to be missing a limb? Uh, you know, how do you qualify as healthy?" So. Uh, In in fundamental ways, I think Rhodes's vision, because it was a very colonialist vision. Um, had changed and allowed people like me who, uh, you know, I swim and I run, but I don't swim and I, ru- I don't swim competitively and I don't run competitively. I play terrible tennis and um, I'm terrible at virtually every sport, but I'm, I have no shame about any of them. I can, I'll play anything. I'll play soccer uh, without shame. I have no shame whatsoever. I, I And I'm a great loser. Um, I, I don't have any problems losing. So, so I think they relaxed the criteria enough that, that people like me would, would want to come and want to be part of the community of the roads. And, and certainly there were some amazing athletes. I mean, there were soldiers who had been, you know, gone to the war and uh, front and then come back to the army. And there were people who came from every single walk. People had taken three years off their life to travel. So it was a diverse group of people. I went there to study immunology. Um, you knew that going in? I knew that going in, I mean, as I told you, I was interested in viruses. I had seen, uh, medically speaking, I had be- become interested in immunology. I was interested in gene therapy. All of these things were, ideas were buzzing at that time around, around Stanford. Important ideas that will, that all of which, interestingly, had a kind of um, slow unfolding in the next 30 years. So we're living through.
0: Sid is among the most gifted storytellers in science and medicine. But these concepts are complex, and I want to highlight a few. First, Sid went to Oxford on one of the world's most famous and prestigious scholarships, and he chose to study immunology. So what's immunology? Well, as it sounds, it's the science of how our bodies defend themselves against infection, using one of the most fascinating and complicated systems in biology, the immune system. And biology, and specifically immune biology, are really the ultimate examples of natural, best-known method. In fact, it's really a battle of best-known methods between the invading organism, the virus or the bacterium, and the cells and systems of the host organism, us. Sid developed a strong interest in viruses that continues even today. He chose to study a particular virus called the Epstein-Barr virus.
1: So I went to Oxford, um, interestingly, at Oxford they're very minimal, uh, requirements in terms of, uh, coursework. The, the research work is just as, uh, requirements are just as stringent, if not perhaps more stringent. So you dive straight into the laboratory and you take the, take your courses basically to supplement that as you wish. You could take none, you could take some. So I started performing, basically my third day I was there, I was performing experiments. I could do experiments, uh, bad experiments, but nonetheless I could do experiments. Um, and so I studied viruses. I was inst- interested, and still am interested. Strangely enough, in um, viruses, Epstein-Barr virus, which is a chronic infection uh, and causes a huge disease burden uh, in the world, in the United States, and across the world, actually is a mystery. Uh, one of the oldest viruses that has co-evolved with humans, and yet remains a mystery. So, the the mystery that I took up at Oxford still interests me. Actually, um, is how Epstein-Barr virus is different from, from an immunological standpoint, is different from influenza. So when you have an influenza infection, you get the infection, you clear the infection, and if you scan the body and ask the question, is there any influenza left, the answer is none. It's gone. Your antibodies and your immune response and ultimately your T cells have cleared the infection, killed the cells that have the virus, and all the remnant virus is gone from your body and you have immunity to, if that same virus was to reinfect your body, your antibodies to that virus would reemerge from memory B cells. Your uh, T cell response would reemerge from memory T cells and, and various other components would be deployed and you couldn't get easily reinfected with the same strain of influenza. But that's not true for Epstein-Barr virus. If you acquire Epstein-Barr virus, the so-called kissing disease causes among other things, mononucleosis mono, that virus is retained uh, in your cells, particularly in your B cells, but in other cells as well for the rest of your life. And the question is, why is that? How could one virus be completely eliminated from, uh, the human body while another virus maintains a chronic infection in 70, 80% of hum- humans for our entire lifetime? And I found that question fascinating. And I worked on one sort of edge of that question, which it's, is,
0: it's not uncommon though, right? There are other viruses that do the same, right? Uh,
1: That's right. So there's some. uh, So there's some. In fact, the list is not that large, and they share many common things. So most importantly, members of the so-called large herpes virus family um, are able to do that. So herpes simplex, uh, which causes herpes, does that. Uh, The other one that's very common, of course, is chickenpox virus. Also known as VZV, but really is chickenpox virus. It's an amazing question, right? So why is it that you get chickenpox when you're six years old and then you have no symptoms at all? It clears, the infection clears. And then when you're 82 years old, all of a sudden you get shingles, um, out of uh, the same strain of virus, which has been sitting chronically inside your nerve cells. Now these days you have vaccines. So, you don't see that. Um, by the way, I, I had this experience. I had chicken pox when I was six years old, and then at forty-five, I had shingles. Come on, uh, and it's completely mysterious. The good news is that I think now I have lifelong immunity to, uh, you know, because once you get shingles the second time, it was horribly painful. But but now I trained my immune system to hopefully never have it again. But it was horrible, a very painful experience. Uh, so back to uh, so sort the of back to the question. Um, it turns out Epstein-Barr virus has a very specific mechanism, has a series of very specific mechanisms to avoid immune detection. And I, w- along with Alan Townsend, I was working with Alan, essentially discovered or co-discovered with two other labs what that mechanism was. Epstein-Barr virus manages to specifically escape the system that we have in that we have in place within cells. To recognize infected cells, it has specific ways that it has evolved, such that its uh, its proteins are not recognized as foreign. And uh, they're fascinating. They're a fascinating series of uh, of experiments. That field has now grown much much larger. People are using these discoveries to f- try to find vaccines against Epstein Barr virus and so forth. So that was my most of my work uh, at Oxford.
0: And sorry, can, just so because people probably probably don't know exactly what. Harm of Epstein-Barr virus is besides just getting mono. Yeah. It also causes a, a
1: cancer, right? There's a, a, it causes several cancers, but among the ones that it most causes, causes a cancer called Burkitt's lymphoma, which is a, a really terrible cancer. And there are a whole series of mysteries around Burkitt's lymphoma. So Burkitt's lymphoma is named after Donald Burkitt, uh, but interestingly has a, has an endemic region and it's a part of Africa. And if you look at the map, of where malaria exists in Africa and where Burkitt's lymphoma exists in Africa, they are strongly coincidental. They you could almost overlay one on top of the other. And that's an interesting mystery. We're in 2019. We still haven't solved that mystery. What is it about malaria? Uh, we know a little bit about what it is about malaria. But something about malaria clearly causes this virus, which is, you know, most of us are chronically infected with, you probably have it, I have probably have it, but chances that you and I will get Burkitt's lymphoma uh, related to Epstein-Barr virus is extraordinarily minimal. Whereas if you had the same virus and you were living in a malaria endemic zone, chances of it would rise maybe eightfold, tenfold, depending on exactly where you were. So it's a real fascinating mystery. You know, Why is it that this virus requires a co-pathogen? And the answer is, we know a little bit of the answer. It has to do with the fact that Epstein-Barr virus lives in a particular cell, B cells, and these B cells get expanded when you have a malaria infection. So it's not like malaria is acting as a co-pathogen. It's that malaria is stimulating the very cells that Epstein-Barr virus is able to transform into cancer.
0: One of the most inspiring things about Sid is how he does so many things so well. And when you look back on his life, You can see how this was no accident. I want to highlight a few important things. First, of course Sid put himself in a spectacular position by getting the Rhodes. But, second, he did not simply focus on his research work. He kept his head up and actively looked for adventure. He also understood that he was in rare company and that they all had so much to learn from each other.
1: But the other thing that happened at Oxford, which was actually important, is that because of the Rhodes uh, scholarship, I began to meet people who were quite widely outside my field. I'd met people like that at Stanford, of course, but these were also people who were launching their own lives, thinking about things that were were, were interesting to them. And I met, among other people, uh, Peter Beinart, who would then become eventually the editor of the New Republic. Yeah, of course, um, he was a co. We were co-scholars together, and I should tell you the way we became friends. Peter and another uh, friend of mine, um, the way we became friends, there were four of us, is that um, I had wanted very badly to go to East and West Africa, partly because of Epstein-Barr virus, partly because of, of malaria. Uh, it was a little bit like going to a Cilomar as an undergraduate. Um, so I, I maybe the first dinner or the second dinner that we had together, we used to have a common dinner as a as a Rhodes class. Um, I went up to Peter Bynott, who I didn't know very well. He was sitting next to me. And I said, Peter, you know, I'm really interested. He came from, his parents were from South Africa. And I said, Peter, you, I'm really interested in traveling in West Africa. Do you want to go together? It was a completely, it was like one of these cold calls. And most people would say, you're crazy, go away. Um, but because it was, there was a kind of sense within the within the class that, you know, there was some commonalities between all of us, that somehow we had come here with similar aspirations to look at the world, and and experience adventure differently and really frankly being given the privilege of doing that he said sure let's go and so a vacation was coming up so we applied for some money and got it all three of us got it independently and we you know just to pay for the tickets and then we off we went we went backpacking for two and a half months in uh mostly east africa and then back down to south africa and it was relevant because two things happened. One is that I took Peter for the first time to uh, what was then, you know, Oxford's malaria outposts, malaria centers, research centers uh, in uh, Kenya um, and in South Africa. And the other thing that happened is that when we came back and Peter was still writing for the New Republic, but not an editor there, he said, why don't you write about all of this for us? You know, why don't you write about this, the trip? Why don't you write about Science, medicine, you know, whatever whatever's going on in. And I said, that's really interesting. Let, let, let me think about it. I'd never, ever, obviously, written one word for a magazine. I, I mean, I obviously was trained, academically trained to write, but I'd never written a word for a magazine before. And that started a, a kind of a series of relationships that ended up with me, of course, writing books. But back then, the first spark was, you know, a long trip into a strange place for both of us, and we had a third friend who travel with us and both of us saying to each other I don't know anything about your universe you don't know anything about my universe we, we you know we could be two trains passing in the night but it's relevant look around you you know this is 1993 then look around you look around in in Africa um where the beginning of now the second wave of aids was was beginning um uh and I you know I would for instance, tell Peter, I mean, this is, someone needs to think about these things. This will change the geopolitics. If, if, if you were only interested in politics, this will change the geopolitics of, of Africa. And and again, it was amazing because, astonishing, because we were two trains passing each other in the middle of the night. The magazine world itself turned around or, or was upturned uh, in the next 10 odd years, partly because of the internet and social media. So, Things changed in, on on that end, but what had not changed very clearly was the hunger and the curiosity around writing about ideas in this in the science and medicine s- spheres um, and writing very broadly about them uh, it was the the appetite was was absolutely infinite uh, you could you know I, I remember. There was one time when I met one of the editors at maybe the New Republic, maybe at, uh, at another magazine, and essentially they said, we'll take any piece of interest, not because it's written by you, I'd like to be flattered that that was the case, but just because the appetite for this kind of, uh, of thinking, what's, what's happening in this world? I mean, how are things moving? It was just, just infinite.
0: Sid's experience at Oxford was successful on many levels. It was so successful that he seriously considered not going back to medical school at Harvard, where he had previously been accepted before the Rhodes. I asked him if he was tempted to stay on at Oxford and to continue his work as a scientist, if he considered skipping medical school. He told me that he did, much as many in similar situations living in what he called, quote, this double life, also do. And here he tells how his mentor in Oxford, Alan Townsend, had a similar experience, and how that experience shaped his own decision to go back to medical school.
1: Alan, actually my mentor, uh, was interesting himself. He, Alan Townsend is an incredibly prolific immunologist. And he discovered, actually, for which he won many prizes, but he discovered as a, as a very young man in medical school, he took time off medical school, took time off, I think he was a senior resident or a consultant or whatever they call them in England, he discovered how a big mystery back then, and the big mystery is how can uh, the immune system recognize something that's inside a cell? Because the immune system can only see, like all other systems, can essentially only see things outside the cell. There's no way for one cell to have a magnifying glass to look inside the other cell. These you know, their cells are bound by membranes. And there's no way that one membrane can send a feeler into the other membrane, punch through it and ask what's inside you. The only way is if there are specific mechanisms, specific apparatuses, apparati, that allow one cell to, and I'm going to use the word literally, literally, because that's true, to literally take its insides and present a sampling of itself on its outside and Virtually all our cells are doing this uh, most of the time. They're taking samplings of their insides, uh, peptides, proteins, we now know actually more than just peptides and proteins, mounting them through a very specific pathway and presenting those inside components to the outside so that the immune system can survey them. This is an ancient system. We think that even sponges had them, even simple animals that are multicellular have them. And there are lots of interesting philosophical consequences of this. You know, this is the consequences of multicellularity. One of the consequences of multicellularity is that you have to ensure that cells are working with each other and not against each other. They're not sort of parasitizing each other. What is What if if you were an ocean animal and a foreign cell suddenly pretended to be you and took over you and became you? And every time you try to replicate or divide, it would get a little bit more function. It would get a little bit more advantage and it would start, uh, taking you over and then become you sort of way down in the, in evolutionary, uh, history. Multicellular animals invented mechanisms to distinguish self from non-self. In other words, a cell that was part of yourself versus a cell that was not part of yourself, a cell that was you and it was fine versus a cell that was infected by a virus and in fact was actually a zombie infected by a virus but there was no there's no simple system by which you can discriminate the immune system can sniff one out versus the other and the way it does this is is it essentially cells present their inner components and display them on their cell surface it's almost an obligate system they have no choice but to do that and Alan had figured that piece out. Alan had figured out how this process works. How is it that a cell can take its innards, parts of its innards, and send a sampling of itself outside? Why is it obligate? And this, of course, is related to Epstein-Barr virus, because the question that Alan then asked was, how can some viruses avoid it if it's obligate in every cell? So that's the piece that I was trying to solve. I had come into Alan's lab and the first question Alan told me is, look, we spent the last 10 years figuring out why this is, most cells can do this. But now in the next 10 years, we're gonna to try to figure out how can some viruses avoid doing this. Back to Alan, um, Alan himself was an MD, PhD. And during the time I was at Oxford, this was kind of a strange thing, he became reattached to medicine and he started going back to rounds again. Um, which was kind of astonishing and intimidating because uh, I went to a couple of rounds with him uh, just to watch him. It was astonishing because he had to go back to rounds as a, as a relatively junior consultant, right? Alan had gone back to medical school. He had become more interested in cancer and metabolism. Uh, everything comes full circle. He had more, become more interested in regenerative medicine, stem cells. And so on one hand, Alan was saying, stay on for a long time, at Oxford, you know, you finished your PhD, why go back to medical school and waste your time? And I would say to Alan Bell, why are you in the, you know, why are you in, and he would say, well, there's something about human medicine that if you have one kind of brain that you will always be attracted to and you'll never, never get over. So, and I said, well, if that's true for you, Alan, it's true for me. So I went back to medical school. That was the backstory of all of that.
0: Sid went on to medical school at Harvard and then completed his residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He did a clinical fellowship in oncology, also at Harvard. And then he did more scientific training. But it was during this phase of his life that Sid really began to flex his writing muscles. He talks about how he transitioned from writing athletically to finding a bug. It's an apt phrase for someone who had spent so many years studying viruses.
1: By this point, I was writing a lot, but I was only ri- I was only writing sort of I would say five thousand word pieces for the New Republic. Public. I'd written a bunch for the I, th- I think I'd written something for the for the New York Times Magazine and the New York Times, but there were four or five thousand word pieces. Uh, nothing in terms of a book. But I've, you got you got the bug. Uh, well, I, I got the bug in the sense that you know I was then I, for me. I mean, I was interested in things, as I said. There was an appetite on the other end. Uh, the best way to describe it is that by then I knew how to write athletically, like it, just in the in the sense that if you put a gun to my head and said, "Give me a five thousand word piece on something of interest," I could do that. But that was not the bug. That doesn't push you to to write a five hundred, six hundred page book. Um, the bug for me was was much clearer and became clearer years later. The the bug was finding the right question. So the triple thread in medicine was being a you know, physician,
0: a scientist, and a teacher. You were probably gifted, at, clearly gifted at all three. And then you had this, this fourth talent, which was sitting there for you. And, and you, you were going to try to balance all of them?
1: Well, you know, the que- this question occurs to me all the time, and it recurs in my life all the time. You know, for me, it wasn't about balance. It was about integration. Uh, it was about thinking about these projects, not as competitive projects, but thinking about them as one big whole. Uh, W-H-O-L-E could have been one big H-O-L-E as well but one big whole uh, one big integrated piece which is to say that I would write to think those thoughts would generate new ways of thinking about questions Uh, those questions would simultaneously generate new ways of thinking about medicine and science and I would write about the experience of that thinking and about the medicine and the science that came out of it that I would, the whole circle and there's a circularity about it, that the whole circle would be fulfilling. And there would be sacrifices. I would not become the genius uh, MD, PhD, translational researcher who runs 14 clinical trials. That would not be me. That was very clear that you'd have to make an important series of sacrifices. I could not be a great clinical teacher because... The only way I could teach potentially is through the books or through the through the writing. So, every place there would be a, I would have to chop one limb off to sacrifice to make up for the other, but that the projects would not be, therefore, if, if one made those sacrifices and if one was conscious of them and made them willingly, that the projects would be completely integrated. So, the, the Emperor of All Maladies really emerged out of a patient's question a woman came up to me and said, uh, you know, I, I'm willing to go on with my next round of chemo. She had um, sarcoma, um, actually was responsive to uh, targeted therapy, one of the first sarcomas that began to respond to targeted therapy. And she said, but I need to know where I'm going and I need to know what I'm battling. And it was a strange moment for me because, I mean, i had written, I, I knew the world of books, I knew the world of all of this. And yet I couldn't find that source, uh, to answer that question in a more comprehensive way. And that's when I, I started keeping a journal and then I grew into a journal. I, don't, I did not tell anyone. The only person who knew was, was my wife and, and my fellowship director. Um, and then when I had written about almost 200 odd pages is when I uh, approached an agent and then approached a publisher. Um, so I never have written, actually in my life, I've never written a book proposal. Um, I've only written the books. So I start, I get to about 200 pages, and then I, that's my book proposal. It works for some people, for some other people, it doesn't work. But for me, that's the only way. It works for you. It, it worked very well for yep. me because, you know, writing a book proposal for a scientist is like, is like saying, I'm going to do an experiment, but then never doing the experiment. Or, and it's a very weird feeling. It's much easier, actually, to dive in, just do the, do the work, do the preliminary studies.
0: At this point, I hope you are seeing why I got on a plane to go to New York to sit down with Sid. He's a phenomenally interesting human being in so many ways. This Stanford, Harvard, Oxford trained physician scientist, who also happens to be a Pulitzer Prize winning book author, published a study this past summer that was born out of a collaboration with a very famous scientist named Lou Cantley. Lou discovered an important enzyme called PI3 kinase, which is extremely important in cancer and diabetes. Here, Sid describes the collaboration they had and a fascinating dinner that led to one of those napkin moments and ultimately an amazing discovery of how putting mice on a ketogenic diet makes them more likely to be cured of cancer after treatment with a chemotherapy drug, a drug that targets PI3 kinase. And remember that the keto diet is a diet that is very low in carbohydrate, and it replaces those carbohydrate calories with fat that leads to several things, including a reduction in the hormone insulin that normally helps store sugar from our diet in fat. It also leads to production of these small chemicals called ketones. This is why it's called the ketogenic diet. I wanted to talk about how you got to this collaboration with Lou Cantley yeah. and, and you know, how you got, got into the world of nutrition metabolism in your own work as an, as an oncologist and a cancer biologist.
1: So, tell me a little bit about how that happened. Um, So, Lou and I had seen each other a bunch in Boston when I was working at David Scadden's lab. Um, So, I knew Lou quite, not very well, but well. And really, this is one of these strange cases in which this interaction, which has now grown into a very intriguing clinical study, grew out of nothing. We were approached by an institute, and uh, sort of cold, cold. And said, you know, you think about cancer, Lou thinks about metabolism. Lou had, of course, made his name uh, by discovering the pi 3 kinase pathway, which is a central hub of, of metabolic signaling. And uh, we are interested in funding some projects around cancer metabolism poorly. You know, this was about eight years ago, seven years ago, maybe.
0: Tell people really quickly what PO3 kinase is and why so, it's important. So, uh,
1: just very simply, PO3 kinase is, is a central signal. It's one of the hubs that senses and carries the sense forward of your metabolic status, particularly your nutritional status around sugar, uh, in particular, all it senses, other things as well. So, you can imagine it as a hub um, in the center of all cells, most cells, that detects the metabolic milieu in which a cell is and transmit that sig- transmits that signal through another other components down to the cell to tell the cell information about its metabolic milieu so when you're starving the cell behaves differently when you have no insulin the cell behaves differently it, it, it's sort of a, a downstream actor uh, or signal beyond things like insulin signaling so but very simply put it's one of the hubs of 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 metabolic s- sensing for every cell So we were approached by this institute, and they said there were a couple of people, and then they invited a couple more other people. Peter Atia was one of them, and Gary Taub, uh, who was a journalist writing about sugar. And they sort of set up a dinner for the four of us on the Upper East Side. I just remember exactly where it was. It was some Japanese restaurant. And it's very complicated because Peter Atia then was on a strange starvation diet. So it's impossible to eat. Dinner with someone who's on a strained starvation diet. Lou had by then given up eating sugar almost completely. Uh, So thankfully, the Japanese restaurant was some middle ground, otherwise, we'd have nothing to eat. And we began to draw on a napkin. This was really a napkin drawing experiment, asking the question what would be, if you were to have a little um, experiment to run in which you could alter the diet um, and alter cancer therapy, what would that experiment be? So, we started again to take a step backwards to ask the question could you run an experiment like the kind maybe an epidemiologist would run, like David Ludwig might run? Uh, he's not an epidemiologist, but a met- metabolic epidemiologist might run, which is to say, you know, could you segregate people into two groups and say, you eat one diet, you eat a different diet, and let's look at cancer response? Um, and we saw, we quickly realized that was likely to be very crude. That experiment was likely to be very crude. You know, once people have cancer, particularly if they're on chemotherapy, there's a whole set of reasons why you can't. that experiment would really be quite unsuccessful. You can't change diets that easily. There's a lot of genetic variation in them, in the host, a lot of genetic variation in the cancer. So, so then on a piece of paper, Lou began to think about, well, what if we th- thought about diet as a co-drug? So you have a drug, you have a drug, and the diet becomes a co-drug. It becomes a drug like that drug. So what would be that kind of experiment? Um, And then keeping on iterating this, Lou began to ask the question, you know, what if we did this variation, that variation, and we really began to brainstorm. And on, again, on that piece of paper, uh, kind of a napkin experiment, we started asking the question because I had been, I had seen patients then on PI3 kinase uh, inhibitors. These are drugs that inhibit the metabolic sensor, um and virtually all of them would become hyperglycemia. They become pre-diabetic. And that was accepted as a side effect of the drug. And in fact, that was often, we'd send them to the endocrinologist and the endocrinologist would say, oh, you know, decrease the drug dose or give them metformin or insulin or whatever it might be. And we would do that. And that was the end of that story. So we focused in on that story and said, well, wait a second, that's quote unquote a side effect of the drug. But what if it's not a real, just, just a side effect of the drug? What if that is the effect that's driving now the tumor to become resistant to the drug? In other words, the drug causes a physiological side effect, high sugar, high insulin, and that high insulin is now what is uh making bringing the tumors alive again. It's a it's a, it's a malignant it's like a malignant circuit. You give the drug, the sugar goes high, the insulin rises, the insulin now does undoes all the things that the drug was trying to do by reactivating uh, tumor cells and uh, reawakening them. You're
0: basically creating resistance by doing exactly what you're meant to
1: do. That's right. And so—and this is an interesting kind of resistance. It's not genetic resistance. It is metabolic resistance or physiologic resistance. Very important because it reminds us that doing experiments in a petri dish where you don't have the pancreas and the liver, you can get misled because the pancreas and the liver in the whole organism is undoing what is being done in a petri dish. In a petri dish, you put cancer cells alone, you add your inhibitor, the cancer cells die, you, you say you're very happy, you file a drug with the FDA, then you run the clinical trial, and the clinical trial doesn't work, or doesn't work as well as you think it's going to work, because once you put the drug in a whole human being, their liver and their pancreas are now resist or creating mechanisms of physiological resistance, not genetic resistance, but physiological and metabolic
0: resistance. I see. So the purpose of this experiment was to overcome the physiological resistance with a nutritional intervention that basically reduced circulating insulin.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. So the question then became, how do we safely reduce circulating insulin? And that's not easy to do because you can't take insulin away without providing a fuel. Insulin is the central uh, fuel sensor. In our body uh, senses glucose, so so the question is that how would you do that? And the answer: there are a couple of ways you could do that. Uh, the simplest way you can do that is to change the fuel in the body. Um, and so there's only one other fuel that will really substitute for insulin in the body, and that's ketones. You, your body can run on ketones. Um, it has some problems, but uh, your body can run on ketones. And once you run your body on ketones, it's like changing the fuel in the car. All of a sudden, you take all the petroleum out, and instead of the petroleum, you're giving it some artificial fuel. God knows what ethanol will say. Um, And your body can run on it. It's just that you won't produce any insulin. Your body will think that there's no glucose, but your brain runs fine. Your pancreas runs fine. Your liver runs fine. Just the amount of insulin is is dramatically reduced. It can go down to one-fifth the normal levels. So that was basically by that time we had come up with the with the essence of the study. Now, the complicated story about all of this is now this goes into the social behavior of science is that that institute itself fell apart so All of a sudden, we had a study, at least an animal study that we were going to do first, but no funding for the study. So then Lou and I met at a separate Japanese restaurant without anyone else and said, look, you know, we think this idea is important enough. Let's just pinch our own resources from wherever we're going to pinch our resources. I said, I'll put one postdoc on it. You put your postdocs on it, and we'll just get the study done without any funding. We didn't even apply for an NIH grant. We just pinched uh, money from wherever we could pinch and, and do it. And that was ex- The study, at least in animals, was extraordinarily successful. So if you put the animal on a diet, the ketogenic diet, and added this inhibitor, it could keep tumors at bay. But not all tumors. Actually, leukemias are weirdly resistant. Um, AML is weirdly resistant. So we don't know why. We're trying to figure out why. But most tumors, especially most solid tumors, um, are very sensitive and, and they are synergistic. So if you add the diet plus the uh, therapy, they either stop growing or they melt away.
0: There is a well-known saying in science that we have cured cancer thousands of times in mice, but not so much in humans. This has led to very understandable skepticism over scientific findings in mice. But Sid and Lou knew they had something big and they knew it was important. They knew they wanted to begin to see if this work linking the ketogenic diet to dramatic improvements in cancer treatment in mice would translate to humans. They also knew that the pace of typical academic science was slow. You write a grant, the grant gets reviewed, and then by the time you get the money, if you get the money, it's at least a year later. So Sid and Lou used some unusual but very clever methods to speed up the work. This is best-known method at its finest. As Sid will tell you, he wrote a 140-character grant, the shortest grant ever written.
1: So that led to a paper in, in, as I said, in Nature by 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 pinching from two laboratories, uh, totally unfunded, um, and then the plot thickens. So we then wrote wrote a study and said we should try this in humans. Meanwhile, people like Ludwig and uh, Marcus Gonsalves, who is a co-author, who is an endocrinologist, and um, Virginia Macker, were already running people on keto alone, just to show that that diet itself was tolerable and tolerated. And we've actually had, Marcus has about five or six people on keto alone, um, just to see if the diet itself is tolerated. In fact, the insulin level collapses. and they These even- are people with cancer these some of them have cancer, some of them are okay. quote unquote normal volunteers okay. so um the the collapse in insulin is striking uh, by week two. um You can see the insulin level drop, you can see the glucose level drop, you can see the ketone level rise, and the people feel hard it's hard for the first two weeks, but after that they're fine they're eating steak and eggs every day basically um and there's some important cardiovascular considerations there i mean can people eat fat and protein and not have any um I would personally be unsurprised if, in fact, they don't have increase in plaque, because I think we now have evidence that even with cardiovascular disease, the inflammatory component and the insulin component is important. But I'm open to the idea that there might be some cardiovascular consequences, which we're looking for, we look for, for sure, they have Patients will have their cholesterol measured, they'll have their triglycerides measured, they'll have uh, they'll see a cardiologist um, as part of their uh, general routine care. We wrote the study for about 50 people, patients with cancer. Uh, and now the question was, who's going to buy, who's going to provide the drug? Again, this is not funded by the NI, it's funded by nobody. Who's going to provide the drug and who's going to provide the diet? So the drug bear, I think, is going to provide. Um, but then the question was, who's going to buy the diet? And now things get very interesting because we were stuck about several hundred thousand dollars short because someone had to feed these people the right diet. And I sent out a tweet saying, you know, we're interested in the study. There's strong science. We believe the science. We can't tell you if it's going to work in humans. And this philanthropist, this lovely woman, wrote back a day later saying, look, I'm, I run a, you know, I'm interested in diabetes. I run a philanthropic uh, organization. Uh, she's thanked on our website. You can find all the details. I just want to reveal too many names here. And she wrote back and said, I'll fund the rest of the study. And the next week, a check arrived, um, at Cornell from her foundation, uh, making the study complete. So that is the shortest. So in 146 characters, <laughs> uh, that is the shortest grant I've ever written or shortest foundation grant everything. So anyway, the study is mostly funding replete. They're still going back and forth about figuring out exactly who to put on. It's a phase one study. It's a safety study. Hopefully we'll get some signal, but that's uh, that's where it sits. And and basically patients with various kinds of cancer, endometrial cancer and lymphoma, breast cancer and others, will get a combination of PR3 kinase inhibitor, the drug, and be on a ketogenic diet, and we'll measure everything, insulin, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But most importantly, we'll look for a response.
0: I wanted to ask Sid to speculate a bit on what he thought might be the impact of the keto diet, not just on cancer treatment with drugs, but on cancer prevention. That is, given the many positive effects, and especially the effects on insulin, might the ketogenic diet offer prevention from cancer? This is nearly impossible to answer, but Sid's responses were spot on and humble and brilliant. So I guess I'd love your thoughts on on this diet, and it's a, it's a study that can't be done, or if it can be done, it can't be done for a long time. But but just your thoughts on this diet in terms of cancer prevention.
1: Yeah, so that's a very important question, and, and, uh, and we've been thinking about that as well. I mean, can ketogenic diets prevent cancer? I mean, the, for the first... Concern here is whether it's it's tolerable from the standpoint of cardiovascular disease and other diseases, which may be caused if you switch over to high protein, high fat. Um, it's, you know, the amount of fat can be to- moderated, tolerated, but ultimately you need fuel. And the question is, if you run your body on ketones, is like saying running a car on ethanol, some effects are predictable, uh, but some effects are not predictable. So for instance, just to give you that example, let's say you found a new fuel to run a car on you wouldn't know whether you know the car might run for a while but and you know you actually might, might get some more speed out of it but just to use an analogy you might not know if one particular valve it's totally unknown if one particular valve would start getting clogged because of a side effect of that new fuel that new product that was produced uh from that new fuel so so i think speculating about uh, about the possibility of cancer uh, prevention is tough because We think that there is a relationship between insulin and many cancers, and we think that in general, reducing insulin would be helpful. We don't know what aspect of insulin is the problem. Is it causing chronic signaling in some cells, uh, thereby increasing the survival of these cells, particularly ones that bear mutations, which would otherwise be eliminated? Is it an immunological effect? Is it an inflammatory effect? Um, So... I think that the next stage before we enter the universe of cancer cancer prevention is to tease out uh, what would happen if you put a patient on a ketogenic diet in terms of the, the things we best know. Right. What happens to their immune system? What happens to their cardiovascular axis? What happens to simple things like uh, hematopoiesis, their blood formation? Uh, what happens to their bones? So things that we can assess Physiologically, that would be the next step before suddenly leaping and saying everyone should be on a keto diet. We've been very clear and tried to make it very clear that we know really very little about cancer prevention and ketogenic diet by itself. We know very, very little. And we'll do it step by step. We will get there, but we'll take a series of steps. What we know very clearly is that you can run your body on ketones as fuel. Uh, there's little doubt about that in the short term. Actually, my wife is. Frankly, Ketotic has been for the last five weeks, six weeks, um, because she felt actually got more energy. Uh, this is anecdotal experience that not may not be true for everyone. Some other people have a lot of trouble with it. We know quite certainly that the, that the sugar is bad for you, but that's for metabolic reasons. We actually don't know very much about sugar and cancer, for instance. There is so much to learn in how Sid has approached his life. He is a master of
0: best known methods in education, science, medicine writing. And as we ended the interview, I wanted to probe a little bit more about how he might advise young people just getting started with their careers. I get asked from, from time to time by college students. So what are the, what are the skills or classes or things that I ought to be doing at this time to prepare myself for whatever I want to do in the future? I'm curious about sort of, if you could go back in time and think about, um, a certain class or a skill that you could acquire as a college student, you could pass that wisdom on.
1: Well, I, the, the, to me, the answer is very obvious. Uh, it would be statistics. Um, I learned the hard way. I mean, maybe some co- computers as well, but um, I learned the hard way that I had to relearn a lot of statistical sciences. Um, and it's, it's 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 trickier than you think. And it can fool you more often than you think. Um, so I wish I'd taken statistics as a course.
0: Yeah, I, I'd share that. I, I wish there are a few that I'm missing. Like, I, I wish I knew a shred of computer science. Um, that that would help too but um i want to ask you one last question which is um i think i'm very curious about personally so how, how do you approach writing
1: well so for me it's become quite clear which is that i write to answer questions um i had a column in the times as you know for one year uh times magazine for one year and it was a very different uh, sort of task because rather than writing a book i would write every month, um, a 1200, 1,400, 1,400-word piece, but it was capped at fourteen, fifteen hundred 1,500 words. And if it went over, I had to cut back because there was only so much space that was assigned. And it was a very tough experience. I, I liked doing it. I had a great editor, Elena Silverman, but I, 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 but I had a tough time doing it because um, every time I had to ask a question. Um, so the, how do I approach writing in general? I wait for the question. And when the question appears... The next stages are much much easier, but I know what the question is, and the question has to be sort of n- non-trivial. It has to have a depth to it that can sustain a book. So that's that's generally my. On opinion. a more practical level, I, th- I think I've read
0: something I can't remember which is which, but the, you know they compared the way that Cezanne and Picasso painted, and one of them was constantly making a you know realm of a huge ream of sketches yeah. before they would paint, and one would just have it in
1: their head and paint it. Are you a Outliner or... A, uh, it's so, so... I mean, you see that couch over there. That's where I. That's where most of the pieces are written. And you'll see underneath, stuffed underneath, I have a pillow and a blanket and so forth. So I don't write... Uh, I don't paint sketches or do something for a long time. I, I will take an idea and play with it or linger with it for a long time. I won't put a single word on the page. I'll think about it, think about it, think about it, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, tossing it around like a football. And then... At some point of time, it'll become clear to me what the question is and take us a long time. That process takes a long time. So for the times pieces, that process could take two weeks in which I don't, wouldn't produce a word and I would get panicked phone calls from Elena saying, the illustrator has to put something down on the page. Can you just tell me what the column is about? And I would say, you know what, Elena, it's going to be about nutrition, but I don't know anything more than that. So I'll just make some general pictures about nutrition. And the two nights before or three nights before, it would become very clear uh, what I was writing. And then once it was very clear, actually get, things get written very quickly.
0: We can't see the future, but we have to make decisions today that best enable our success tomorrow. Sid's path to becoming an award-winning writer was born out of an adventure he took during his Rhodes Scholarship with a fellow scholar who later went on to become the editor-in-chief of The New Republic. He wrote books without contracts, and one of those books became a film. Sid wrote a grant to fund an important trial designed to test the effect of the ketogenic diet on cancer treatment in a single 140-character tweet. Sid could never have known how or whether all of these experiences might lead to a career full of amazing accomplishments. He was forced to make decisions with imperfect information, imperfect evidence, But he used the information he had, and he combined it with his intellect, his intuition, and his judgment to always put himself in the optimal position. This is The Best Known Method.